Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What is going on, everyone? This is Dr. Josh Funk, and you are listening to the Strength and Knowledge Podcast. Good morning, everyone. This is Zach Baker, and I have with me Christian Huckfelt, one of our two residents here at the R2P Sports Residency. And this is another episode of a journal article review, which is part of their monthly requirements as they progress through their classroom and didactic material as part of the residency program. Uh, the final week of the month is when we release the journal article review. And this month we went through emergency management. So a little bit different theme than previous months. Our previous months have been geared more towards either a specific body part or injury. Uh, Now we're getting into more of what I think really separates like the sports residency from an orthopedic residency, which involves all of your sideline coverage for practices, for games, pre-participation screening, physicals, Uh, really all of your more emergency management uh, type activities. So, uh, Christian, do you mind talking to us a little bit about what the article was that you selected um, and really why it was of interest to you? Yeah, definitely. So the article I chose was called The Diagnostic Accuracy of the Ottawa Ankle Rule to Exclude Fractures in Acute Ankle Injuries in Adults. And so this article is a systematic review and meta-analysis meaning that the authors compiled many, uh, much of the existing research on this topic and then really kind of summarized it in the systematic review. Um, I chose it because, I mean, as you obviously know, Maryland is a direct access state, somewhere between 40 and 50% of, I think, most of our clinicians' evals are direct access in nature. Um, of those, of the acute injuries, this is just my personal, um, what I've been experienced so far is that for the acute injuries, especially for our high school and college athletes, my ankles are the most likely to come in direct access. Um, most people with acute knee injuries, acute shoulder, elbow injuries, enough that they feel the need to seek medical attention. I have found that people will likely seek a doctor first, um, especially recurrent ankle sprains or if people have done it before. I tend to think that people are a little bit more comfortable just trying PT first. Um, and so because of that, because we are the first-hand line of communication and the first-hand Uh, medical, um, we need to be able to rule in or rule out potential ankle fractures. And so the auto ankle rule, I think, is something that most PT students, hopefully all, have been exposed to at least a little bit in PT school. Uh, I know we learned a little bit about it in school, and obviously we had, you and I, I know, have had some 
uh, closed-door conversations about using it in the clinic. Um, but I found this recent systematic review. It just got published uh, late 2022. Um, so I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about it on a podcast. No, and I think this will be one that's appealing uh, to those that are currently in school or new grads or who have been in the clinic for a while. Like you had mentioned, auto ankle rules typically are covered in, to my knowledge, most PT school curriculums. Uh, they were covered in mine, which has been over 10 years ago, um, and I'd have to imagine that's pretty consistent throughout most programs. And like you alluded to, Maryland, as with some other states, are direct access. So the need to be familiar with these types of clinical decision-making algorithms is very important in regards to the patient safety and really just efficiency of their care as well. Are we triaging them into the right directions, being seen by the right professions, uh, making sure we are doing no further harm to what the injury already is, um, and also just from a communication standpoint, um, whether we are kind of easing fears of them thinking the worst, or like you had mentioned, a lot of times ankle injuries, for whatever reason, maybe it's just the prevalence of them, the familiarity with patients, uh, they often aren't thought of as significant as like a knee or hip or back injury. And many people do just try to walk it off or they try to be a little bit more conservative. And sometimes you need to make that conversation a little bit more urgent for them. And research and studies and tools such as the Ottawa ankle rules can help you strengthen your argument and validate some of your concerns that you may have with them. So uh, Christian, do you mind going a little bit into the article just regards to uh, how it was set up, and what they were looking at. Yeah, definitely. Uh, real quick before I do, if you're not familiar with it, the Ottawa Ankle Rules are a diagnostic tool that acute management clinicians, whether that be um, hospital systems, athletic trainers, physical therapists, can utilize to determine whether somebody needs to obtain x-ray imaging after an acute ankle injury. I think just kind of best practice in the past, or maybe not best practice, but Common practice in the past was just get everybody x-rays, and, and obviously we're kind of learning now if we can limit some of the radiation on those, especially in children over time, it's important. So that's why these Ottawa ankle rules are important. Um, with them, it's five rules, the first being uh, the ability to weight bear immediately and for four steps in the clinic. Uh, the second being um, tender to palpation either on the distal fibula or the posterior part of the lateral malleolus. Uh, the third being tenderness to palpation on distal six centimeters of the tibia or the medial malleolus. Those two are the ankle specific. And then there's two foot specific being bone or point tenderness on the fifth metatarsal or the navicular. So just to quickly highlight, this article only speaks about the ankle rules, meaning it's the ability to weight bear and then tenderness on the medial or lateral malleolus. It did not include um, studies that talked about tenderness in the foot in either the fifth met or navicular. Um, so this systematic review, just like many others, uh, really starts by looking at the many existing databases and looking at current articles on the topic. Like a lot of article reviews through the inclusion criteria, they come up with a, a large number, about 250 articles, and then systematically ruled out different articles based on um, the patient population and based on other characteristics of the articles. Um, this study came down to 15 total articles. I think about 13 were cohorts. Uh, one was a randomized control trial and one was a non-randomized control trial. 
So after they find the 15 articles that are going to be included in the systematic review, the authors then go through and synthesize the data, basically pulling the sensitivity, specificity ratings, and the positive-negative likelihood ratios and predicting ankle injuries using the Ottawa ankle rules for each article. And they put it all in one big data chart and then run a certain number of statistics to determine what the kind of the group data is. Um, they also, through a, a couple other methods, assess for methodological quality of the articles, basically looking at how the articles were done, was there a risk of bias, or, or was there appropriate procedures performed in order to ensure the results were, were accurate. So that way they can report as a systematic review whether the specific articles included in this review are, are um, consistent and reliable articles that we can rely on. And the one thing that I did like about this was it had mentioned kind of in the rationale for performing this article was that a lot of the studies that were out there are greater than five years old, and a lot of them were geared towards the pediatric population. So one of the things that they did highlight in this was that the average age of the people from these studies that they were pulling from was between 25, uh, sorry, 25 and 50 years old. So getting more towards that adult population. And I know whenever I think of Ottawa ankle rules and Ottawa foot rules, uh, I do always tend to think of that youth and adolescent population. And part of that may be because they're just uh, the individuals who are most likely to be sought care for uh, or may just be putting themselves in positions where there is a higher prevalence of injury. Uh, but I did think that was interesting about this review uh, was that it did have a target age of over 18. And I believe that was one of the exclusion criteria was, was not having anybody less than 18 years old in it. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for clarifying. Yep, 100%. So the results of the study um, found that the sensitivity rating was 0.91, which is a really high sensitivity. And what that means is that when the Ottawa ankle rules are negative, meaning they are not tender to palpate on the distal tibia, fibula, and they are able to weight bear, we as clinicians can be pretty confident that there is no fracture present. So negative Ottawa ankle rules, we are pretty confident, no fracture. Um, the specificity rating was 0.25, which is a relatively low specificity rating. And what that means is that if somebody is tender, so they do have a positive result on the Ottawa ankle rules, meaning they're tender over the fibula or tibia, or they cannot weight bear, um, because the specificity is lower, that means there will be a certain number of false positive ratings, um, meaning that we will eventually send them for imaging and they will not come back as having a fracture. Um, so sensitivity was really high, meaning that this tool can predict fractures when they are present very, very well. Um, the specificity is very low, meaning that even if somebody is tender to palpate on the bone or is not able to weight bear, we should still send for an x-ray with the understanding that there is going to be a larger number of false positives included there. Um, and then with this, Christian, what are kind of your big takeaway messages with regards to the results from this? And I guess let's just start off basic. Was there anything that you took from this that was unique or different or was it more just kind of confirming what you were already uh, believed to have known? Yeah, that's, this was probably a good study for, for my confirmation bias, honestly. Um, that's kind of what I was familiar with. Um, in, in our direct access setting, um, we teach all of our clinicians, at least, and you help to, is, is really 
erring on the side of caution when necessary. And this kind of just confirmed that, meaning that when we have these direct access ankle evals, um, if somebody is not tender to palpate over the bones and they are able to weight, weight bear, excellent, great. We probably can are able to operate with a pretty high sense of confidence that they do not have a fracture and we can kind of proceed as needed um, versus if somebody is tender over the bones or, or is unable to weight bear. Even though this study kind of confirms that there is a high false positive rating in that situation, I'm comfortable um, just calling it there and saying you probably need to go get an x-ray just to rule out. Um, and the way I kind of communicate that with both patients and parents is, especially with medial malleolus and tibia fractures, will a fracture, if it comes back on an x-ray, change my course of care? Um, and, and I think through um, ankle injuries itself, we used to hear a lot about the RICE principle, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. And recently, we've kind of gone to the acronym Peace and Love, which is really kind of suggesting that a little bit of relative rest is okay early on, but then we need to get that individual moving. We need to get them weight-bearing safely, of course, but we need to get them moving. And if, in the case of an ankle sprain, I would feel more comfortable with that. However, if there was a potential for an ankle fracture, obviously maybe some weight-bearing or impact stuff might be contraindicated or potentially making it worse. So in this situation where somebody comes back positive on the Ottawa ankle rules, even though I understand that there is a legitimate chance that it's a false positive, I'm still going to send that patient, go get an x-ray, just so then I can operate with a greater sense of comfortability throughout the rest of the treatment. And it just comes down to me being able to say to the patient, this is what I'm concerned about. I think you should get an x-ray because it will potentially change our course of care. It's never something that I'm saying, hey, I am confident or I know you have a fracture unless there is significant deformity. But as long as I'm framing it in the, in the manner of saying, this is what I'm concerned about, I think getting an x-ray may impact our short and medium term uh, plan of care. I, I would feel more comfortable if you got that so then we can proceed with, uh, with a better sense of exactly what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And I, I always think there's nothing wrong with communicating what you believe is the, the best or most appropriate standard of care. What the individual does with that information is up to them. Whether they act on, choose to act on it or choose not to act on it, we cannot force them to do or not to do something. Uh, but I think just from a, you know, a, a almost negligence and just best practice standpoint, if the literature is suggesting one thing, then it is often best to at least communicate that results to the individual. And I think you hit the nail on the head with regards to there's probably going to be a degree of discomfort associated with activities moving forward, whether there is a fracture or not. If you have any suspicions of there being a fracture or some degree of bony involvement, I feel way more comfortable pushing somebody through an activity, encouraging them through an activity, having them progress into higher level movements and activities if they're functionally competent with it, if I know they are structurally intact and do not have a bony injury. If that's still up in the air and you have somebody that, hey, they are making range of motion gains, they are making strength gains, they're able to do things that they were not previously able to do last week from a movement standpoint, but they still have that baseline level of pain and that pain still persists or maybe even gets more aggravated with activity, I don't feel overwhelmingly confident with that individual as we're getting them into activities in the future that are only going to put more stress on that bony area. So um, I, I do tend to be 
a little bit more, I don't want to say conservative, but I guess a little bit more by the book when it does come to recommendations for imaging. Um, and I usually frame it up as well as like, I'm not the end all be all with this. And um, I think if anything, it may not hurt just to get a second opinion. Or if you are recommending imaging for somebody, they're probably the same individual that they're having an orthopedic touch point anyways with a physician. So it may be something as, I don't know if you do or do not definitively need imaging, but this injury is serious enough to the point where I do think an orthopedic physician would be in your best interest to be involved with this case. Then you're almost kind of passing the torch off to the orthopedic to say, this is how they presented when they saw me. I think that they should have a consultation with you so that you can help uh, plan out what the best plan of care is moving forward. What are your thoughts on imaging? Um, and who knows, maybe by the time they get there, you know, 24, 48, 72 hours later, their symptom profile may be different and it may no longer be warranted. Or if it is the same, then you have potentially two people voicing the same uh, concern to that individual. Um, Christian, have your, I guess, thoughts as a clinician, um, now that you're you know, progressing through your first year in the clinic, treating independently, uh, treating relatively autonomously as well, meaning that you are getting people direct access where you are oftentimes the sole uh, information provider for them. How has how have you found uh, your kind of thought process evolve uh, compared to either the first month that you were encountering these patients uh, to where you are now? Um, do you find yourself either more or less confident with your decision-making? Do you find yourself... Um, referring out more or less than what you used to? Are there any patterns at all that you've noticed? Yeah, definitely. I think early on in my career and probably some of my coworkers at our Frederick Clinic can attest to this, I think I was pretty quick to send somebody out for imaging or a second look um, when I wasn't 100% sure on whether they needed imaging or not. And I think some of that comes with, A, I was early in my career and my N equals X of number of reps I had had just wasn't there. I mean, B, I, I just wanted to be really cautious early on until I had seen more. Um, I will say I have slowly begun to, I don't want to say refer less, but I have not i have not referred as quickly on some things as I have grown as a clinician, and I can be more confident that there is something that I'm not, I don't need to necessarily be over overwhelmed or, or worked up about right now. Um, so I would say that's probably the biggest change so far. I mean, honestly, it's it's a true attestment to some of my clinicians in our Frederick Clinic who, as you know, we have nine or ten different PTs there, so pretty much have been able to pull in a second set of eyes on a couple of different occasions on something that I'm saying, hey, this is kind of what I'm thinking. Uh, I haven't seen this. What are your thoughts? And I think pretty much every one of the times, the other second set of eyes, I think you and I even did this one time, you had said, yep, I agree with you. I think we should probably send out or, hey, I, th- I think it's okay. Maybe we let's wait a week or two and then kind of see where it goes. So I think, honestly, as the number of reps have increased, I have become more confident, I would say, in my acute management skills. I would still say I probably, as a, as a person and clinician, still lean a little bit more on the conservative side, meaning that if I'm moderately concerned, I would likely still send for to a physician or for imaging because um, I, I don't want to get put into a situation where I'm putting um, kind of my motivation or my attitude ahead of ahead of the kind of the plan of care, and we, we get to a certain point down the road 
weeks or months later, and then we look back at imaging and say, wow, that really could have changed things for us early on. The way I look at it is direct access is an amazing privilege that Maryland has, but the fact of the matter is it's a new privilege, and not all states have it, meaning that if we weren't in the situation that we were currently in, these individuals would have already seen a doctor anyway. So even if I send them to go see a doctor and get an imaging at that point, it's something that they likely would have already had to have done a couple of years ago or in a different state. So it's not like I'm adding a whole lot to the situation, if, especially if it's more of an insidious onset and depending on the age group and, and the joint and kind of what I'm finding, if, if there's really no reason to kind of send out, I, I'm not going to send everybody out, of course. But um, especially those acute injuries, the pre-adolescent um, age group, significant swelling, deformity, anything like that that makes me even mildly cautious, I'll send out. And I've actually had a few uh, finger and toes lately that I've, I've had been pretty puffy. And I think if, you, if you've ever seen a jammed finger, it's pretty darn tough to tell if it's broken or sprained when it's puffy and uh, inflamed. But recently I've, I've, I've had a few. I've, I've sent most of them out. And uh, the ones I have, I've been happy that I have sent out. So I think one thing that you told me early in my career here is that I think if you frame it right to your patient, um, they're not going to be mad or upset at you for sending for, for imaging or to see a doctor because you have certain concerns. However, I think if you did not send somebody and you did have a little bit of concern, um, it, ju- it just it would be difficult to either sleep that night or, or you run into issues later in the plan of care. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you had just alluded to is a very important point that when you're making these recommendations for imaging, it's very beneficial if you can spell out for them what their plan of care is going to look like based off each result from the image. Hey, I would like you to go get imaging. Just confirm that we do or we are or are not dealing with this. If the imaging comes back saying this, this is what we're going to do. If the imaging comes back saying the other thing, this is what we're going to do. And I think that also helps just provide clarity for them that you are confident in your ability. You do have a plan in place, and you're not just in kind of like a, a wait-and-see mode and, and you're you know passing the ball to somebody else to make the decision for you. Um, and it's also something where they know that there is actionable and intentional information coming off. I think another important thing to keep in mind with Ottawa Ankle Rules is keep in mind that the purpose of this is to identify bony injuries. So another part that may factor into your decision-making of if you are referring them or not is, is there any other logical condition that could be causing these positive results? Meaning, you know, they have a difficult time weight-bearing. Is there anything else in related to that area other than a bony injury that would make sense to make it difficult weight-bearing? Um, is there anything else from an anatomical standpoint or that's relevant to the mechanism of injury that could cause point tenderness in or around some of those areas. Um, you know, does it follow a mechanical principle with contractile tissue in that area, or does it not? And I think when you, you take a look at it from that lens and you start to think about all of the other things that may or may not influence it, I, I don't think the decision to refer for imaging is as daunting anymore. It almost spells itself out for you. Um, it gives you just more information to work off of. Yeah, 100%. I, I agree with that. Um, Christian, any other parting words, or do you think we, we covered everything with this article? No, I think we I think we kind of I think we got the majority of it. It really sounds like with Ottawa ankle rules, if it's negative, the clinician can feel pretty comfortable moving on without imaging. Um, if 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 it's positive, 
in my interpretation, um, kind of use your clinical judgment. I would probably still encourage clinicians and students out there to still refer for imaging just to rule out a fracture. Um, the one thing that this article says is makes it pretty important um, is just they, they highlight that the clinician should not only use the Ottawa ankle rules in isolation. They should also use their clinical judgment and the situation present in front of them. So this is not just we are using this and we're forgetting everything else we've ever learned and every other experience we've had. I think it's kind of a combination between this in addition to our experiences, in addition to the current scenario the patient is in, the mechanism of injury, and what the person in front of you presents us. Perfect. As always, Christian, thank you for time and efforts uh, compiling and synthesizing this information for us and look forward to having you back on next month. Thank you for listening to the Strength and Knowledge Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or have been tuned in for multiple episodes, we would love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Until next time, thanks for listening.